Well, tonight we begin our journey through chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, one of the most uh, interesting chapters in the entire Bible, Uh, one of the real gems of the Old Testament. It contains within it, um, perhaps, if not the, one of the one of the top three intercessory prayers found in the entire Bible, and, and I would include along with that the prayer of the Lord himself, um, Daniel's prayer that we're going to look at tonight, the beginning of the first 15 verses here. Um, this prayer is one of the most spectacular prayers that you find in the entirety of Scripture, and it contains within it some absolutely marvelous keys to our prayer life, uh, it gives a picture of the response of a man, uh, one could say a woman, one could say any of us who love the Lord in a time in their life when you look at the world around you and you know it's going the wrong direction, what should our response be? Because sometimes Christians do the, the holy give up thing. It's like, oh well, you know, they throw their hands in the air. I mean, it's just the world is going to be like that until Jesus comes. Just to give you a little word of advice, don't ever say that in front of me. Because we don't surrender. We don't give up. While we still got breath, we got things we can be doing until Jesus comes and gets us. And it's not, you know, giving up. We need to, we need to be powerful in what the Lord does have for us. And so uh, tonight as we begin the prayer of Daniel and the, the first part of this uh, amazing prayer, I want to encourage you that Daniel is going to, in the first three verses, refer to the very reason why you all are here tonight and why you must be students of God's Word. Um, Because he is going to refer to the Word himself. And the reason he does that is because the Word, Jesus, God's Word, His Word spoken to us, His prophetic Word to us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he says, he will accomplish. Sometimes we don't know how, and sometimes we don't know why he does what he does. But if he says it, we can take it to the bank. And Daniel believed that. When Daniel prays this prayer, it's the prayer of a man who believes the word of the Lord. And I can tell you right now, and and I know probably like many of you, as I watch television, as I read news magazines, as I look at the news on the Internet, and I see what's going on around the world, um, I'm pretty excited about us being close to the end. I'm also very concerned for the lost. I see the direction the world's going, and I go, man, this just can't last much longer, and I'm going, I hope it does last because there's a lot of unsafe people. So there's this great dichotomy that we have in our hearts and in our minds as we ponder what's going on in our world. What we need is a prayer life like Daniel because that accomplishes things. It accomplishes things here on earth. It accomplishes God's will, both heaven and earth, because we should be seeking what it is that he wants, not necessarily what we think or what Bill O'Reilly said or you know, some talking head on television or, or, you know, somebody who has just a great political view. I mean, those things are important, of course, but they're nowhere near as important as knowing what God's Word says and knowing how to achieve the goals that God wants. And the only way we know that is through prayer. And I want to really encourage us as we look at this tonight, get out your notepads, write some notes, and pray like Daniel prays. 
Amen? Let's pray like Daniel prays. Lord God in heaven who rules uh, above the heavens and the earth who is exalted most high, Lord, to you alone do we owe allegiance, to you alone do we owe our lives, to you alone do we owe our eternities, and against you alone have we sinned, O God. And we pray that as we look at this amazing prayer and as we think of our own lives and the direction of our country, the direction of this world, that we would be stirred to be men and women of prayer. God, fill us with your Spirit. Anoint us to the task of being good listeners. Lord, hearers of the Word and doers as well. God, bless us as we study. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, so now we've switched We've gone from the Babylonian rule to the Medo-Persian rule, the rule under which Daniel has now survived two world empires. He was there during Babylonian rule. It's now Medo-Persian rule. And he is is here in the beginning of this next world empire, ones that we've already seen in that vision uh, in the image. And he says, It was then, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood. Notice this, underline it, circle it, and highlight it. I understood by the books. What books is he referring to? Uh, It's not 40 days of purpose. It's not the purpose-driven life. Uh, It isn't your best life now. It's not uh, how to accomplish Oprah's goals for the world. It's not Time Magazine. It's not a bestseller on the the book list of the New York Times or the L.A. Times. It is the books, also known as the book. At that time, it was what was known as uh, those first five books of Moses, likely the Pentateuch at least, and probably some of the prophets, especially the book of Jeremiah. We're going to find that out next. Um, But it was likely most of what we have is the Old Testament. The Tanakh. And so here he has himself been a Berean, as we would find in the New Testament. He studied the word. He knows the word. This is not taking him by surprise. He's not wandering around going, God, why am I here in Babylon? Even though it's a terrible thing, okay? He's now been there for the better part of 66 years. He's not wandering around, gee, I can't believe this happened. I mean, after all, we are the children of God. I mean, certainly the Lord's made promises to us. One of the things that happens as you study the Word of God is you get balance in your life based on the Word. And this is so important because we have the promises of God. His mercies are new every morning. Hallelujah, amen. Amen? His grace is sufficient. Hallelujah, amen. He judges wickedness. Ooh, hallelujah, amen. He is against the ungodly. Ooh, hallelujah, amen. We get the whole counsel of God's Word. Amen? We don't just get the parts we like. We get the parts we don't like. We don't just get the nice, fluffy stuff like the Gospel of John. We also get the book of Leviticus, okay? We, we get the whole picture. 
And it is so important that you get the whole picture. Because God is a God who is holy. God is a God who expects holiness out of his people. God is a God who, when he looks at us, he says to us, you are my disciples indeed if you keep my commandments. You can't have it both ways. And part of the problem with the church in the world, and very much the church in America, is we only want the good stuff. We want to be told that for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. We don't like to to hear that do you not know that fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. We don't like that part. Can I tell you, you can't pull them apart? You can't separate them. And what is true in one is true in the other. They're God's word. And we have to take it seriously. And so Daniel was not taken aback by what happened to the Jewish people because he knew God's word. And he knew that the Jewish people had been told emphatically that this would be the result. Sin, though pleasurable for a season, the end of it is death. You you see, we have these things that we call contrasting truths. One truth appears to be the diametric opposite of the other, but they're really contrasting. You see, we can't have the holiness without the grace of God, but we can't have the grace of God without the holiness of God. They appear to be opposites. They are merely contrasts. They are the opposite side of the same coin. God is in the midst of both. He is holy, but he's also gracious. He's merciful, but he's just. Daniel understood that because he understood God's word. And so it says, I understood by the number, I understood by the books, notice this, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. He actually tells us how he knows this. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. And he says why, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. What had happened in the history of the children of Israel is every seven years the land was to lay fallow. And for 490 years, roughly from the time of Josiah the king until the time previous to that of the judges, 490 years or 70 of those Sabbath years, The Jewish people had not allowed the land to rest. They had denied the Sabbath. They had especially not taken the year of Jubilee. And they said, you know what, God, we're just going to keep making money. Because it doesn't make any sense for us to let the land lay fallow. I mean, after all, there's some bucks to be made here. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep battling. We're going to keep taking land. We're going to keep doing what we want to do. And so for 490 years... The Jewish people thumbed their nose at God. Now, here's what we do as human beings. We got away with it for a week. Must be okay with God. We got away with it for a month. Must be okay with God. We got away with it for a hundred years. Must be okay with God. We got away with it for 237 years. Must be okay with God. We've been doing it this way since the Civil War. Must be okay with God. 
Just because God chooses not to act in judgment doesn't mean judgment isn't coming. And so what we find here is the justice of God that plays out because his word is true. You can't thumb your nose at God and go, I'm going to do it my way. And just because you don't get spanked when you first do it, you still need to recognize that what God said, God will do. That's where Daniel is. He understands fully. Verse 3 here in Jeremiah 25. From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. Jeremiah has been prophesying in Jerusalem for twenty-three years the same message. He has done part of that naked. He has done about everything you can possibly think of to get the attention of the children of Israel. He, he has done all that he can do. He's now been doing it for 23 years. Now, I don't know about you, that's a long time to preach the same message and not have much result. I give up after the second try as a general rule. It's just like, Lord, the people you gave me. I'm not talking about you guys. You guys must have guilt going on. Somebody totally different than anybody in this room. The word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent you and all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, every one of his evil way. Notice the message. Repent. You're doing this the wrong way. God's not happy. Don't do it. The church's job is to present all that God is. And when the church gives up on that message, the church goes in the same toilet as everybody else. Do you understand? Because that's the job of the church. We don't say anything. You can count on where you're going. So your only option is to speak the truth. Of course, we do it in love. Of course, we want to make sure that message is presented in a way that it could be received. But you can't give up on the truth. Notice what happens. He says, do not go after the other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. In other words, he's saying, don't think for a moment you ain't going to get a whooping. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. In other words, whose fault was it that God was mad? Whose fault was it they were going to get a whipping? It wasn't God's. For 23 years, he'd sent Jeremiah the prophet every single day into the... Thus says the Lord, stop doing these evil works, turn from them, don't do it anymore... I don't know what you don't get about the message is what he's basically saying. What did you expect me to do? He says, and therefore, it says in verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Notice he says who, whose servant the king of Babylon is. He's a pagan king, but he's putty in the hands of God. Nebuchadnezzar, go do my bidding. 
the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring him against the land and against the inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, hissing to a perpetual desolation. And moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, I will take the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. He says, I'm going to take away everything from you that you hold dear. And the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So a full 100 at least years before Daniel writes what he writes, close to two likely, depending on how you place the book of, of Jeremiah in relationship to what happened under, under the reign of, of the various kings. So a long time in advance, with 23 years of the same message getting preached, the message was, you keep doing this, I'm going to send you into captivity under a king that hasn't even been born yet. But I'm going to name him by name. His name's Nebuchadnezzar. That's how we know that Daniel was a student of God's word. That he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And then I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so he says, in response to what he knows has happened, and this is where your lives get touched, we know what's going to happen. We absolutely know what God's Word says about the way the world's going right now. He says, it's not of me. I won't tolerate it. You cannot touch my children Israel like this. The book of Joel plainly declares that the tribulation will actually come because of what was done to the children of Israel and to the land that belongs to God that he gave to them. It's what it says. Read it. You can't keep messing with Israel. If you do, you announce yourself an enemy of God. And so people get tweaked at me, everyone. Oh, you know, you're kind of, you know, what are you, a Zionist? No, I know my Bible. And what my Bible says is, you can't be against the nation Israel and for God. And so you have aligned yourself with the enemies of the Lord. And if you do that, that's a bad place to be. Because ultimately what he says is, destruction is coming your way on a global scale. And so as Daniel begins to pray this prayer, it is warning to us to not underestimate two things about God. Number one, his long-suffering. He waited a long time before he carried this out. He, he gave them plenty of opportunity and chance to turn, but they refused to turn. Number two, God keeps his word. And what he says he's going to do, he does. And the timing is his. The severity is his. What he wants to do and when he wants to do it, his decision alone, and only he knows why. But make no mistake, he's going to do it. It's coming. And so as we read our Bibles, we need to be like Daniel. There's no symbolic imagery in this chapter. Uh, this chapter is a very significant framework 
of almost all of the prophetic word of God. And so as we read the prayer, which we'll get to in a moment, I want you to take a look at these other three prayers when you get a chance, these other two when you get a chance. Ezra, they're all chapter nines, so Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, chapter 9. Read them because they have some very similar contrasting but very similar views on your prayer life as someone who's living in a debauched society that's going the wrong way and your responsibility in it is to pray so that that nation repents and returns to the Lord because to not do so is death to that nation and God will carry out what he says he will do. In Jeremiah chapter 25, if you were to read the first 14 verses, you're going to find some things that Jeremiah the prophet said to do during that time of captivity. You know what happens when you go into captivity? You start thinking about the very first day that you're there, when you're going to get out. Right? Nobody goes, man, I'm going to be here for 70 years. God said so. Unless you believe God. In Jeremiah chapter 25, which we'll not read tonight just for sake of time, and the first 14 verses, you're going to find that it says there for them to do a whole bunch of things, and they're not temporary things. Build houses. If you're just going to be there for a week or two, you don't need to build houses. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have families. Increase in numbers. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Does that sound nuts or what? Hey, these guys came to Jerusalem and took us captive. You know why God would tell you to do that? Because you're going to be there a while, and you're going to be under their rule for a while. And in fact, he tells them 70 years. They're all going, I can't be. After all, we're God's chosen people. We're holy unto the Lord. I mean, he would never do that to us. Well, make no mistake, God does punish his own kids. He always has. He always will. Pray to God for Babylon so that it would prosper. Don't be deceived by the prophets and diviners from them. Wait for the completion of the 70 years. You see, Daniel knew those things. That's why Daniel was doing everything that we've already seen in the book of Daniel. He was playing his part all the way because he knew they weren't going to be there three weeks and then go home. He knew that nobody was going to come and set him free until Cyrus the Mede came Because guess who told them that was going to happen? The prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is the one who gives us the one who would be of the Medes that would come. Jeremiah gives us who will come from the Babylonian Empire. Isaiah gives us the one who will come from the the Medo-Persian Empire. And he names him by name. Hundreds of years in advance. And so the whole country becomes desolate. And and it happens exactly as the Lord says. And so Daniel is now looking at it correctly because he knows that they were going to be there for a long time. He got engaged in politics. He stood for the Lord. He did everything he could do to change the situation. He encouraged the people to do the right thing all the time. He stood up for the Lord every chance he had an opportunity to do it because he knew they were going to be there for 70 years. They've now been there for 66 years. So guess what else he knows is coming? They're going to get set free. So can you imagine what happens when Cyrus is announced the governor over the, the providence of the Chaldeans, the former Babylonian Empire? 
He's going, yeah, our time's almost up. We're about to be out of here. The bondage is nearly over. We find that in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. It says there in verse 28 of Isaiah 44, For he is my shepherd, speaking of Cyrus the Mede, and I will accomplish all that I will please, and he will say to Jerusalem, speaking of the Jews, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let's lay its foundation. In chapter 45, he names Cyrus the Mede by name. He said, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, I will make his way straight, and he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or for a reward, says the Lord Almighty. Daniel knew that. Daniel's going, I know what's happening next. I got a clearer view of where this is all going. I know how long we're going to be here. They had already been in captivity for 66 years. He's 80 years old now. He knows he's going to be here for a little while longer, but they're very close to going home. You see, two things strike me as something very significant with Daniel's understanding of Scripture. We would call this a hermeneutical principle, understanding of the Word itself. What does the Word say? When you talk about some some theologic words, to exegete the text means to take out of the text what it actually says. So when we talk about what does the word say, Daniel knew these. First, Daniel believed in the literal fulfillment of prophecy. I think we need to, too. Daniel did. He knew what was going on. He believed it. Second, the closer that prophetic fulfillment becomes the more we're able to discern the time. In other words, from Daniel's time to the time of the Gentiles, long time. But now that all those things that God has said, most of them have actually happened, we know we're a lot closer. People often go, well, how do you know they've been saying that for thousands of years? They have. The only problem is, is all those little tidbits between Daniel and Revelation, there ain't many of them left to happen. They're all wrapped up. We're getting down to that last couple of chapters of the book. Daniel understood that, and that's why his prayer life was the way it was. Because he knew the only thing that he could do was to cry out to the true and the living God. Daniel understood that. And Jesus taught the same type of a prayer life. Remember how he prayed? He said, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As he was ready to be crucified, Lord, nevertheless, if it can be possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed the way Daniel prayed. Or Daniel prayed the way Jesus would eventually pray. You can look at it that way too. This is how we need to be praying. Prayer is often described as ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's an acronym. Adoration, confession, thanks, and supplication. Adoration, confession, thanks, and supplication. We understand who God is. We remember who He is. We confess what we're not. We give Him thanks for who He is. And then we ask him, Lord, what do you want? 
because ultimately we need to agree with God. He does not have to agree with us. I hope everybody knows that. God does not call you up in the morning, man, what do you want to have happen today? Well, I'd like to see this and this and this. Oh, great. Well, we'll make that happen. God doesn't do that. God is God. We tap into what God wants. And so now we have the prayer. And we're going to read the thing in its entirety. So bear with me because it's a prayer. Let's try and read it as Daniel would have prayed it. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, and so here begins the prayer of Daniel, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither we have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but shame is to us of a face. And as to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those afar off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you, O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the voice of our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants and his prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as to not obey your voice. And therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured upon us because we have sinned against him. For he has confined his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who have judged us, by bringing upon us this great disaster, for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. For as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, and yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth, and therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For our Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned and done wickedly. I ought to read that prayer before every session of Congress. That's what they ought to read right there. And then at the end, everybody say, Amen. Because that's really what it's about. This is a man who understands exactly what God's Word says. He knows why they're there. He knows what they have done. He is sorry for his part in it, because he was part of it. He's sorry for his nation's part in it. He's sorry for his neighbor's part in it. He understands fully that unless they turn to the Lord, there's no hope. And so he prays. There's another prayer, a very short one. 
It's found in Second Chronicles. It's chapter 7, verse 14. It's probably one most of you know. For if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The same basic concept. Notice that it fits that act's model. It's acknowledge the Lord. It's confess. We, we absolutely have to do these things. You, you see, if we're not being thankful for the way the Lord does things, including the way He chastens, if we're not supplicating, that word supplication means in essence to make a stern plea. It's, you're begging the Lord. It's, Lord, i got a problem and only you can fix it. It's not pointing to going, well, you know, man, I can't believe you let us in this situation. I mean, you, you owe it to us. Our society, that's the, that's the mantra of today. We turned that corner. I told you we'd turn in this election. We're heading that direction where everybody feels like, you know, well, there's just no real moral guidelines. I mean, everything's kind of whatever you want it to be. And, you know, we just need to make laws that allow for the broadest interpretation of everything. Family of God. That is not of the Lord. Notice how many times it says here, if they would obey. Obey, turn, do what is right, don't do what's wicked. Those things are all obedience. And we show our faith and trust in the Lord and make our supplications true when we are obedient to the things that we're told. You you who are parents, you know this. If your children come in, they go, oh, I'm sorry, and then they turn right around and do exactly what you told them not to do, how much do you think they actually believe what you said? The answer is you don't believe what, that they believe what you said. Same is true for God. He's a little bit smarter than we are. Just a hair. He gets dis- disingenuousness a-, a whole lot quicker than some of us parents do on the uptake, Okay. God gave specific instructions. And in this, in Daniel's prayer, in that, in that beautiful Second Chronicles passage, there's two sides to every prayer. And you need to see this. There's our side, there's man's part, and there's God's part. In that, in that Second Chronicles 7.14 passage, it's very easy to pick these things out, and so I'll use that as a sounding board. If my people who are called by my name, we have a covenant relationship with God. We are God's people by covenant. It's a blood covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're his. We're not our own anymore. We belong to him. We've been bought and paid for with a price. We are his children. He is our father. He calls the shots. We do what he says. We're in a covenant relationship. So our part is to keep our part of the covenant. My part of the covenant is to be obedient to what God told me to do and be. I don't get to make the house rules. He made them already. I'm supposed to entertain what he has told me to do, not make up my own laws. I don't get to define marriage. I don't get to tell him what is a right sexual relationship. I do not get to tell him whether marijuana should be illegal so people can be stoned and drive at the same time. He's already said, don't be drunk with wine as is unto dissipation. He said, don't alter your mind because it isn't good for you. You do stupid things when you do that. There's a reason they call it loco weed, okay? 
It's a reason that you're called a stoner, because when you're stoned, you look like a rock. You act like a rock. Your brain is like a rock, okay? We're trying, well, you know, oh, it's medicinal. Come on, God's already defined these things. And for Christians to sit around and debate this, well, you know, it would it'd bring in tax dollars. That's what the Jews thought. It's what they did for 490 years. They said, we'll just make money during that Sabbath day. We'll bring in extra tax revenue, and we'll put a flat screen TV in everybody's hoopah. And, you know, we'll just have it all. It'll be great. And before you know it, they're off someplace they never thought they'd go. We're in a covenant relationship. Notice it says next that they're, which equates to Daniel chapter 3, or Daniel chapter 9 verse 3. If we'll humble ourselves, that's to approach God with a repentant heart. It is not humility to come to God and tell him why he's wrong, okay? That's not humility. So when people say, well, you know, you guys just, uh, you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, it was written 3,000 years ago, I mean, it's really old, you shouldn't rely on that, I mean, after all, God's old, I mean, he's been around for a long time. That's not contrition. That's us saying, God, you're old. We're new. We're better than you. God has always only accepted a contrite heart. Always, only, when it comes to repentance, it's contrition. You're right, God. I'm wrong. Change my heart. I'm not going to try and change yours. Second thing is humble ourselves. Third thing that's our part, it says, and pray. Same thing as verse 4 in chapter 9. And pray. So I am to recognize I'm God's. I'm to come with humility and contrition, and I'm to ask God what he wants me to do, not tell him what I want him to do. My part. Fourth thing. Confess. That term there in in 2 Chronicles 7, to seek my face, means to seek a confession or to seek an audience. It's to say, God, if, if I don't hear from you, I'm going nowhere. It's to confess. It's going, man, we've blown it. Not go, you know what? Man, you just don't get it, God, after all. I mean, we're a liberated society, and of course we should be able to kill 1.5 million babies a year. I mean, what do you get about that, God? I mean, after all, it's a right. After all, we're a changed society. That's not a confession. That's a demand. That's looking God in the eye and saying, you know what? We know better than you do. You blew it when you wrote wrote your word. We don't actually believe what it says. We're going to do what we want. That is not confession, and that is not contrition. And God won't honor it. And the spanking's coming. Whether it's next week, next year, next month, I don't know. I don't know. I hope it happens during the tribulation. I ain't here for it. That's what I hope. But I'll tell you this, 
There's nothing in my Bible that says it can't get real ugly before the rapture happens. Not one thing in your Bible tells you that we can't go through literal hell before the rapture happens. Not one thing. Finally, on man's part, and turn from their wicked ways. That is a change of action. Repentance is not just contrition and confession. It's a change of action. I don't do it anymore. I say, you know what? I believe what you said, God, and I'm going to do it your way. It's not trying to figure out like the Jews did how to break the law. The moment they figure out what the law was, the first thing they did was try and figure out how to get around it. It's kind of like tax exemptions. It's like you have a tax, but you don't actually pay the tax because there's so many exemptions that you don't actually have to pay the tax. You just take all the exemptions and therefore not pay the tax. That's the way people deal with sin. Well, I'll just figure out some way. I'll pay a little extra money here. I'll do some philanthropy here. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll go to church twice more, and I'll be fine. No, God says change your ways. God's part. Then I will hear from heaven. There's a communication connection that opens up. God's part is to open up that communication connection. Then I will hear from heaven. God says, until you do your part, I'm not listening. Do you get the point? Until man does his part, God doesn't want a part of it. He doesn't want us to try and convince him that what we're doing is okay. He wants us to come in humble contrition to confess our sin and then change our wickedness. Repent. Turn around, go the other way. Then the lines of communication are open. Then God says he will give us a compassionate response. Notice the order. It's very specific throughout Scripture. Nowhere does it say, and I'm going to give you a heresy alert, nowhere in Scripture does it say that you can keep sinning with impunity and do whatever you want and have the grace of God applied to your life. Nowhere does it say that. You can't just do what you want. The doors of heaven are open to those who are obedient to the things of the Lord. It doesn't mean you're saved by obedience. It means that grace produces contrition, confession, and repentance. It doesn't produce an arrogant attitude that says, well, I'm just doing whatever I want because I'm saved by grace. And I know a lot of Christians that are like that. Well, I'm saved by grace. I just do whatever I want. I got my grace card right here. It's in my back pocket. Every time I sin, I pull up grace. Then I pull out my other out my other pocket. I got my mercy card out. Ha! Ah, because I got grace, I got mercy. Because I got grace, I got unmerited favor. You aren't going to judge me. You're not going to give me what I deserve. That's called spitting in the face of grace, man. And God doesn't honor it. I'm not even sure that you can actually claim to be a child of God and even think like that, to be quite frank. I know my Bible says you can't act like that. And that's all I really need to know. And that's what Daniel knew. Chapter 9, verse 18 will tell us that as we get there next time. The compassionate response, I will forgive their sin, indicates that God is merciful when we've done our part. The third thing, God's covenant response to his covenant. 
There is a covenant action to the covenant of God. God creates a covenant. There are two parts always to the covenant. There's man's part and God's part. God says, thus says the Lord, this is my part. You must do this part. When you do your part, God keeps his covenant action. We don't do our part. He does not keep his covenant action. He's under no obligation whatsoever to do anything for us when we have said we don't love you enough to keep your commandments. Real important we get this, because we are walking into a day and age and time where people think they can sin with impunity, that they can thumb their nose at God, they can poke him in the chest and go, see, I told you I could get away with it. Don't do it. Because the covenant action is, I will heal their land. And that's in response to the covenant connection, which is all here, because you've been contrite, because you've confessed, because you've repented, because you've asked the Lord in prayer, then you get his covenant action. That's how prayer works, folks. Why am I spending this much time on this? Here's why. Because you don't have the right to ask of God in prayer for what you have not done in your heart. You do not have the right to ask of God in prayer what you have not done in your heart. You can't say, bless me, Lord, while you're sitting in a bunch of filth. You can't say, Lord, I so want to be used of you, but I also want to be a drunkard. I would really like to be a pastor, but you know, those strip clubs are awfully tempting. I know these are extreme things. That's from the paper today. It's from the paper today. So a pastor in Florida who goes to two, two counties away to go to a strip club. It's like, are you nuts? You think God's going to, he wonders why his church was whopping 22 people. That's because God's going, don't go there, don't go there. We must keep the commands of the Lord. Not to be saved, not to prove you're saved for none of those reasons, but because He loves us and He's made a commitment to us and we have made a commitment to Him. And if you keep His commands, you're showing the commitment's genuine. It's real. I love Him. Now, am I teaching sinless perfection? No, I'm not. Because we are all flawed and failed. But what I am saying is, you've got to try. You have to put some effort into it. And so when your friends, your family come to you, you know, well, I'm perfectly okay with gay marriage, and I'm this, and I'm that. And they profess Christ. You need to have the guts to challenge them. Based on God's word. How can you think that? How can you believe that? How can you ask God to bless our nation when we're in open rebellion to Him? And the answer is, you can't. And He won't. Now, He may providentially allow for a time that is just because of His grace and just because of His mercy, but just like Daniel and just like Isaiah, And just like Jeremiah, the axe is hanging. 
And when God decides to let it fall, it's coming. So the only way to keep the axe from falling is to do our part. To lift these things up in prayer. There are seven truths here in this prayer that I just share with you. First, it says God is great. God is great. He's greater than our Congress. He's greater than our president. He's greater than our founders. He's greater than our statehoods. He's greater than our governments. He's greater than the UN. He's greater than Hamas. He's greater than the Muslim Brotherhood. He is greater than all of humankind in their entirety. Could they combine their brains, they'd still come up infinitely short. God is great. We are not. God is great, and He alone is great. He is awesome, and He is to be feared. Do you realize there's a healthy fear of God? We need to have a healthy fear of God. I think we've lost a fear of God to some degree. I think there are times in our lives when we just kind of blithely wander around, going, oh, you know, whatever, you know, God's merciful. And I'm not talking about walking around with the heebie-jeebies like you watch some scary movie. I'm talking about remembering who God is. He is absolutely just, perfectly holy, and he requires that of us. That should at least cause me to check out what I'm doing. Going, God, man, maybe that's not what you want me to do. That's recognizing and fearing God. A third thing, he keeps his covenant with steadfast loving kindness for those who love him. Nowhere in your Bible does it say he keeps his covenants with those who disobey him. It says he keeps his covenants with those who obey him, not disobey him. If you want his goodness, you must give him yours. That's what scripture declares. I think we've lost sight of that to some degree. And again, I'm not pointing this out as a fault of you and this church, but as a fault of Christendom, as those who name the name of Christ. We wander around defending the indefensible. We make arguments that shouldn't even be brought up in Christian mouths. Saying, oh, well, you know, I just don't know. No, you do know. The bottom line is you don't want to believe what it says. And so consequently we reject the truth. And the judgment of God hangs over our heads because of, it. because of it. Read Romans 1. It is because of ungodliness that the wrath of God will become upon mankind. It's real plain. That he is a righteous God, number four. Righteous is a characteristic, a characteristic of God himself. Matter of fact, our righteousness is directly tied to Christ's righteousness, and without Christ, we wouldn't have any. That's how much it is a God characteristic. It's his perfection versus our flaws. God is righteous. Fifth thing, God is a God of judgment. We don't like to hear that about God. If I were to teach a series on the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, We'd probably pack the church out for weeks on end. The moment you teach on the judgment of God or the justice of God or the wrath of God or, or, the, or the impending doom that's going to come upon unbelieving mankind, people are, oh, that was kind of harsh. God is fully just. He has no choice but to judge 
and he will judge sin. The question is, will he judge your sin under the grace and the blood of Christ, or will he judge your sin under you? That's why we need Jesus. I don't particularly want to go to that judgment of the second death at the great white throne. Don't want to be there. Not going to be a good thing because there's only one outcome. Being cast into the lake of fire forever. That's it. It's, an, it's the judgment of the unrighteous dead. I don't want to go there. And then he says he's a God of mercy and forgiveness. And of course we must have that. We must. Without his mercy and forgiveness, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Amen? So it's not a we're better than everybody else. It's just because we're God's kid, because we're part of that covenant relationship by the blood of Christ, we go, God, you bought us, you paid for us, we're going to do what you want. You call the shots. After all, I'm getting heaven. You ever think of it that way? It's like, what else should you do? That's why Romans 12 says what it says. Present yourselves, therefore, to God as a living sacrifice, which is simply your reasonable service or your reasonable response to what God's already done for you. It makes sense, in other words. It's just like, huh, God saved me eternally. Hey, God, what would you like? God, you, you, you have... Cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. You buried them in the depths of the sea. The least I can do is try and do what you asked me to do. That's all. Not to earn your salvation, not to prove that you're saved, but because it's reasonable given what you've received. Hallelujah. Do you realize what the, what the Lord could require of us? Have you ever thought of that? I think of these things every once in a while, kind of being the weirdo that I am. I sit around and think of what it could be like if it weren't grace. Like, my goodness. The law of the Old Testament doesn't even come close to how bad it could get. Can you imagine if God actually made us be perfect? Have you ever tried to do that? It's a good experiment. If you have young kids, while they're still like below 10, have an experiment one morning. And from morning to noon, tell them, we're going to try and emulate God, and we're going to be perfect from now until noon. They'll make it to 708. Maybe. Maybe. 703. They'll be grumbling and complaining before you even get the words all the way out of your mouth. Can you imagine? And yet we've been made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. We've been declared righteous. We've been declared righteous just like God is righteous by the blood of the Lamb. That's why we're obedient. Like, Lord, thank you. Let me, let me try and do that. Let me endeavor with all that I am to be as you are because you paid for my life. You've given me eternal life. That's the least I can do. Not, well, thank you for your grace, but, you know, take your laws and take a hike. A lot of Christians that act like that. This passage says it doesn't go good for those folks. And something you need to be painfully aware of if God punished his chosen people, Israel, without grace, they lived without grace. They lived under the law, by the law. For the law, 
and through the law. And God still sent them into captivity, allowed them to be slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands, almost to the point of extinction. When you think about the history of the nation Israel, what you need to know is that during the time of the prophets, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah, by the time Isaiah finishes writing, the whole northern kingdom, 11 of the 12 tribes are gone. They have been wiped from the face of the earth. They've either been taken captive or killed. 11 of the 12 tribes. Only Judah is left in the south. Now Judah, under the writing of Jeremiah the prophet, is also going to be taken captivity and go to Babylon and be wiped out, in essence, all but just a very small remnant population. And yet during that time, they were in the land that God promised to them. They were doing the things, in essence, that God had wanted. But as they dwelled in that land of Canaan, they looked out over across the border and they saw, oh, you know, they're kind of the Molech guy. I'm kind of liking that. You know, the Canaanite practices here, after all, I mean, we need to be more inclusive. We haven't really been all that politically correct to the Edomites, and I think, you know, we should probably practice some of those Edomite things and, and maybe inculcate some of their behaviors because they're far more metropolitan. And I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want to be like the Edomites? And before you know it, there's none of them left. And God did that to them without grace. How much more responsibility do you think for us? Because I'm telling you, it's a whole lot easier to be a Christian under grace than a Jew under the law. You don't believe that. Read the book of Leviticus. I get through like half of the book of Leviticus and I'm like, I, I would no way. I would have never survived that. And under grace, it's I've been freed from the bondage of sin and death by Christ's blood. How much more responsibility do you think we have as children of grace? I say to you, infinitely more than the Jews did. And so if God allowed this to happen to the Jewish people, and he kept his word to the nth degree, and Daniel's praying from captivity after 66 years in captivity, Lord, we sinned against you, and that's why this happened. God, we blew it. This is not your fault we're here. It's our fault we're here. We need to repent. How much more do you think the children of grace have the responsibility to respond to the grace of God? I say to you, it's infinitely more. That's why it's important that we are what we're supposed to be, and that's salt and light to this world. We can't cave in. We can't just give up. We can't just throw our hands up in the air. As I started tonight, you you can't just, oh, well, it's just the world. It's all going to burn anyway. Yeah, including the souls of billions. And we're their best hope. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Should be. We're their best hope. We're salt. We're light. We're righteousness in darkness. The words that are used in this for the things that Daniel's describing... Man, we should just inscribe these in the Supreme Court. 
The word that's translated sin is the Hebrew word shatah. And it means exactly what it means in an English sense. It means to miss the mark. We missed the mark. To, done, to have done wrong is the Hebrew word ava, And it means to distort or act perversely. To take the truth and distort it and then act on it. Well, after all, we're sexual beings. And that's evolutionary. So we just do what evolution tells us to do. God created sexual relationships. It's man that's perverted it. And we can't agree with man. We got no business agreeing with man. To be wicked is the Hebrew word rasha. It means to do known wrong. Not the kind of, oops, I didn't know that. It's I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. Rebelled is the Hebrew word marat. It means to defy authority. It means to look God in the eye and say, not happening, doing it my way. You see what I'm talking about with how we are today? To turn away is the Hebrew word shawir. It means to satisfy yourself. It's like, this is like the code of conduct for America. Sin, do wrong, be wicked, rebel, turn away, and finally not listen to lo shama. It means to absolutely reject truth. Lo shama. And so in Daniel's prayer, he confesses these things. We've missed the mark of God's glory. We've distorted what you've said and act perversely on it. We've done known wrongs. We've defied your authority, O God. We sought to satisfy ourselves, and we have rejected your truth. I say to you what Daniel prayed, we need to pray. Because unless we do, I don't give us much hope. Frankly, I'm hopeful in the Lord, and I know what's going to happen through him for me and for you because you love the Lord. But I give no hope to this country. I think it's going the wrong way, and it's going there very fast. And the hope that we have is that we can turn the tide by banging on the doors of heaven, living it before men, so that they will see those good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, boy, we cry out, and, and Lord, not in a judgmental way, but we can see the signs. Lord, we have studied your word. We know what it says. And God, we have missed the mark. Our nation has missed the mark. We as individuals at time missed the mark. God, we have distorted and acted perversely on the things that you have given us the grace to be able to do and the freedom to do and the liberty to do, but we've used it wrongly for our own selfish ideals. God, we've known to do right and we've done wrong anyway. God, we cry out with Daniel the prophet. We cry out to you. Lord, change our hearts, change our minds, cause us to dwell uh, in the shadow of the Most High God. Lord, as Daniel opened up this prayer, he prayed, to, he prayed to the covenant name. He prayed to Yahweh. He prayed to the Creator God, Elohim. And he created the master, prayed to the Master of the Universe, Adonai. And you are Yahweh Elohim Adonai. You're the God who saves. You're the God who's the covenant maker. 
You're the God who's the master. And Lord, we just declare you that. Help us to walk in your ways and through it to have peace and to have joy. Lord, we pray that you'd create in us a new heart. Restore to us, as David prayed, a right spirit. Lord, we don't want you to cast your face away from us. Lord, we want to come to you and know that because we've been obedient, God, that we will receive your mercy. And so, Lord, help us to be instruments of your holiness as well as your grace. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Next week you're getting PowerPoint slides. Yep, already working on those. For all you who wanted the math there in Daniel chapter 9, we're gonna, we'll run it all out ad infinitum. Do all the work. Amen? God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out tonight. Tell your friends, I don't know, you know, we, we could have this whole place packed out on a Wednesday night pretty easily, I do believe. Great book to be in. The book of Daniel.